Hello! Welcome to a new episode of Unsolicited Advice, the podcast with advice in its name, yet we hardly give any. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Evan. What's Evan? up? What's up? Feeling What's good? Up? Feeling good? Uh, today's special because we are here at Stand Up NY Labs on 78th and Broadway, right above the famous club bearing the same name. Um, pulled a couple of strings, moved to the big house. Uh, anyways, we have a great show for you guys today, and we're just going to toss around ideas, thoughts from the past election, and look towards the near future. Um, before we get into it, uh, I want to introduce our two awesome, successful guests, both with a steady knowledge of politics and everything else under the sun. Uh, sitting across from me is JD. Say what's JD. up. Hey, what's up? There he is. That's JD. Is that an American uh, accent? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's worked in Kenya, London, D.C., and New York in the field of international peace building and conflict prevention. He currently works for an organization in New York that focuses on strengthening the effectiveness of the U.N. and maintaining international peace and security. I would mention the organization association by name, but then peace building and conflict prevention would probably go to shit. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, we're doing really well at the moment. So, nice. yeah, Let's with, with that, that exactly. Uh, our second guest uh, across from me also, last but not least, is uh, the host of the political podcast Mandatory Samson, uh, also executive producer at Digital Media, part owner of Stand Up NY Labs. And relatively recently became the producer of the official podcast of the UFC called Ooh. UFC Unfiltered Ooh. with uh, comedian Jim Norton and former UFC champ Matt Serra. Um, so what's up, Chris? What's up, man? Good yeah. to be here. Yeah, good to be. I used to work for Chris. I used to. Uh, <laughs> I used to get burrito bowls. And that's the for him. burrito bowls. Yeah, that's the, that's the former protege. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I better hope I don't go to the dark side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're here. Let's. How should we start? What do you think? I mean, we could just. Just get, get into it. Well, I mean, how are you guys feeling right now? You know what I mean? How are you guys feeling right now? Just general emotions. I'm feeling great. I mean, I'm actually really excited that I don't have to be in the producer's chair right now. I can just sort of be part of a conversation. But uh, I think yeah. you mean, like, generally, how do I feel about the state of the world and things like that? Either or. But I can see I feel that. <laughs> I mean, I feel good in the moment. So we'll go with that. I'm, I'm feeling hungry. Burrito bowl. I had a sushi burrito the other day for the first time ever. So that's got me hungry. Sounds really bougie. Um, really bougie. <laughs> um, but how am I feeling about the state of the world? Um, not as reactionary as many people are in this city. Okay. All right. Interesting. I'm pretty reactionary. <laughs> yeah. I'm no, pretty reactionary. The same. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know what's, what's, what's it been like talking to other people for you guys? Other uh, people with different feelings about this election. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, my, the crowds I operate in, uh, UN crowds, are friends from home, which is England. Um, and is probably very liberal individuals in this city. Uh, all of them share the same horror with the election results and none of them understand how and why it happened. But um, I don't know, I, you know, living through the Brexit uh, moment when we, we kind of saw the writing on the wall and we had the same thing happen here. I was, at, we, we went to a basketball game two weeks ago and I mm -hmm. said Trump could win. And no one else said that, right? No, like very few other people say say this. Especially and, in New York, yeah. And and like now they're so reactionary on the streets protesting, and and it, you know I, I didn't see many of those people doing things beforehand. That really frustrates me. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. What what about you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously I'm around a lot of comics because I work here, and uh, you know it's a pretty liberal city. It felt like a funeral on <laughs> the day after the election coming in here and. City was like eerily quiet, I would say. Uh -huh. um, to your point about the people protesting, 
all power too. If you want to protest, you have the right to do that. That that's fine. I understand that kind of reaction. But that's also the same stuff that people were worried that Trump was going to do and his supporters were going to do if Hillary got in there. So it's a little bit, you know, pot calling the kettle black kind of moment. I, I think it's there's steps you could take uh, structurally and politically that I don't think that's going to address. Trump is your president. You could protest that he's not, but it's not really going to go anywhere. But again, if you want to do it, you know, feel free to go do that. Yeah. But the one thing I'll say is, um, so the 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 day after I had a class over at Fornum and talking to a lot of the professors, you did see a lot of that same, um, you know, very you know fatalist reaction. Um, a lot of people were very worried about one, their <clears throat> the future of their you know research opportunities. I had people, uh, some of the professors were talking about how they had contacts at the uh, National Institute of Health that were actually very concerned about you know their funding and things like that. So for them, it was like a like my my research, my policy, my my plans moving forward uh, could potentially be jeopardized. And for a lot of the students, that was reflected as well. Um, I, my 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 mentor did say though <clears throat> that a lot of people, and I think you see this in like in the protests and everything, are experiencing a very like cathartic reaction. Like they're they're going through a very open form of of therapy. You know, I don't think anybody like believe that's the thing. I don't think anybody believes that this protest is going to affect the election results in the slightest. You know, right. but it's almost like I have all this energy because I am so shocked that I need to. Do something, whether it, whether it's protest, whether it's sign the petition, at least in the immediate immediacy, you know, in order to somehow rationalize that I'm still engaged with this country. Right. You know? yeah. yeah, I think you're right though about the you know that's a legitimate concern that mm -hmm. that funding's going to get cut and things yeah. like those are like concrete things that could actually happen. You know, again, people can go protest, but I think there's you know a lot of issues that at at stake that should be taken care of first, which is get money out of politics, publicly financed elections. There's a lot of things that could actually be done, putting protections back in place for different voting groups that were excluded from the election. You know, there's, there's things you can do, but of course, yeah, people are just not, panicking, as, you know? it's but, not as sexy as protesting. Though. Right. Yeah. Like, no one wants to actually read. No, it's true. Stuff. And you know, like to the point of, you know, funding cuts, that's not unique to a Trump administration, right? That's a Republican, right. and it's Republican administration that's going to mm -hmm. do that. So, you know, though there are some severe and serious aspects of this next administration that we're going to be very scared of and are going to affect many of our lives. But it's not a unique thing to Trump. The unique thing to Trump is his rhetoric and his lack of qualifications. I mean, in, in, but the, the people around him are going to be exactly the same people that have been there that were around Bush during Bush's administration and that have been in Congress for the last eight years or 16 or 20 years. Um, you know, and, and one thing that keeps coming up at, at the UN and people are really upset about is actually for for the UN and the US's relationship over the past eight years, we've had the, the glory days. It's been the most constructive um, US administration in terms of engaging with the UN, like addressing it through multilateral um, multi like using multilateralism to actually try and achieve aims rather than acting unilaterally. Um, we're going to go backwards on that, which is a severe, um, it's a severe uh, shortage. But, you know, Clinton's foreign policy wasn't going to be good. Mm -hmm. She may have reacted and, and engaged well with the UN, so people's job may have been easier here, but I don't know if the world was going to be better. So there's some severe kind of... Uh, kind of things I'm playing through my head that are really contradictory and I think many of us are feeling the same thing. Yeah, I 
I, I, I was talking to somebody else. It's not that I said it's not that I'm upset that Clinton wasn't elected. I'm upset that Donald Trump was. And I feel like a lot of people are trying to rationalize the fact that you had such a significant portion of the country. I don't want to say because there are definitely people that were fully behind Clinton that were you know dismayed that she's not in office. But I think there's a larger I don't want to say like there's a large portion of people that are also upset that it seems like that rhetoric was validated by a substantial portion you know of the country and they're figuring out how do I come to terms with this how do we move forward how do we heal this you know yeah but to your point I mean the rhetoric like you're saying it is the same kind of conservative Republican rhetoric that you've heard it's just turned up a, a notch he was just less afraid to use the words that other politicians were going to use but it, he did run pretty much on standard Republican orthodoxy absolutely and yeah. you know the things that are going to be at risk are abortion are going to be climate change um the rhetoric on immigration is worse than the democrat administration i mean we know those things and they are traditional republican you know and that's why he actually managed to get votes right. i do know people who were horrified by his rhetoric that voted for him because they're republicans mm -hmm. um yeah. just regarding the rhetoric i mean i want to come back to the policy actually stuff but like i was wondering i was thinking to myself like would it be beneficial for donald trump to at least just like look into the camera like have a press conference and just be like i didn't mean all that stuff i was just trying to get elected like does he have anything to lose i feel like he only has something to gain from the people that are like really worried like because you know the optimistic uh trump supporter or at least the person who says it's not as bad as you think it is will suggest oh he's just you know playing the electorate he kind of did it i mean he just did the cbs interview you know over the weekend where he you know they asked him about the wall and he was like Yes, I'm going to build a wall, but there also could be some fence, you know, like he, <laughs> yeah. he toned it down a little bit and he said that he was, he, you know, there's certain aspects of Obamacare that he likes, which isn't, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare on day one, which is what he ran on. The question is, and I think to your point about the UN, that there's sort of been a golden age, the lack of respect and trust in institutions is going to skyrocket under a Trump administration. And that's, that's the problem. Even if people are doing the job and reporting that Trump didn't follow through on this promise and he said this and he's actually doing the opposite, who's going to be holding him accountable? Because I, I got to assume a large percentage of his supporters don't trust the New York Times or don't trust the Washington Post. They're not going to listen to it anyway. So how do you hold him to account? Which means there's no point him doing that, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm I mean, but, me feel no, it would make us all feel better. But I think that, you know, if you really if you look at the, the dynamics on how the Republicans stay in power beyond the four years. Uh, they need to keep the exact same people that voted for them next time. They need the economy to do slightly well um, to say, look, this is actually working. Um, so they don't need to change anything that got them elected, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I think that whilst there will be some kind of reconciliatory tones, I don't think it will be as extreme as we want. Oh, <laughs> <That's> upsetting. <laughs> no, so, so that's very like... a. There's this, there's this, um, you kind of mentioned it. There's an idea kind of that people are using almost to make it seem like it's not as bad. Like not every, you know, Trump supporter, you know, supported the rhetoric. They voted along party lines. Um, it just so happened that Trump was the person that their party, party nominated. But when you go back a couple months, they had so many options. Like there were so many people on that GOP stage that they could have chosen from and like you're saying like he ran on a what a, a traditional republican platform 
that a lot of that wasn't that different from what a lot of, he what was what was different was how but, he delivered it. Yeah, and the key thing as well that was different was the anti-establishment. I mean, yeah. I mean that does emerge in some other Republican candidates, but it was the you know this drain the swamp idea that obviously is not going to happen because he's going to surround himself by the swamp That's and wild. become the swamp. Right. But that idea that these people have failed you dramatically, and I'm here, I'm offering what you what you want, I'm saying it in the way you want without those people you don't want. Right. And that and that's what did. And I think that's part of the same argument where people, you know, say that the Trump people and the Bernie people are the same. Obviously the policy is dramatically different, but I think they're addressing the same issue. That they, they just think that the res, the solution to the problem is well, it's just the people in office are not listening to us for whatever reason. Let's put Trump in there. He'll listen to us. He'll get rid of these people. That's the wrong solution to the correct problem. They're not listening to you. And the reason they're not listening to you is because there's corporate interests, there's lobbyists, there's all this stuff. And they're not representing the people that are voting for them. The Trump people have diagnosed the problem correctly. The solution is what's wrong. It's not that there's just, there's just the wrong people in there. No, it's always going to be the wrong people in there until you can really get the money out of that system. You know, And, and like this is going to sound horrifying for some people, but the the Trump campaign was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. Like, as in, we didn't want it to be brilliant, but it's kind of it the was same so way that, successful. Uh, yeah, and and the DNC and the Clinton campaign. You know, I actually have friends that worked on it, and you know, people that I you know very dear to me. But they did a really bad job identifying what was going to get them into the White House. And you know, you've seen you know Rachel Maddow go off about all Jill Stein voters or whatever, and and you've seen different thought pieces from wonderful analysts that got the election 100% right the first time, obviously, who are now saying who was the person to blame for this election. And none of them are laying it on the DNC. And ultimately, it's the DNC's job to do that. And and they failed massively. They didn't identify the problems in this country. And so there was no solution in, in order to, to appeal to the electorate. Um, perhaps you guys know this better than I do, but is, was there any particular voting block that literally if that had switched over, that would have won the election? Like, I know it's, like, collectively our fault, but that's a lot to hope for. Angry people. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't a demographic. Right. But. I think 63% of non-college white women voted for Trump, which was a, a huge percentage. Then I think Democrats assumed that they were just going to get a big, you know, percentage of women, uh, particularly white women, which they didn't get. And there's also the aspects of the Voter Rights Act being repealed in a lot of places. And you're talking 13% of people that otherwise would have been eligible to vote in Wisconsin, Michigan. They couldn't vote. And if Hillary Clinton takes 88% of the black vote, which is what she got, mm -hmm. that's the those are the people that didn't get to vote. So yeah. you would assume she would have flipped those two states and probably would have won. But, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I mean, you know, the, the glaring statistic really for me was the final vote tally. And if you look at Obama's vote shrinking to Clinton's, and you look at Romney's staying pretty much the same with Trump. So Trump didn't do anything different. It was protected just a, the lead. Protected same the yeah, plan. just you know, you know, sat there. Um, and Clinton failed to get those Obama voters out uh, for one way or another. People will say sexism. People will say racism. Um, people will say economic, um, you know, disenfranchisement. But they failed. Um, so that's now really the task, like working out how in four years' time they're going to do something about. That. Yeah. And Obama's vote totals dropped from 2008 to 2012 as well. So it really, Obama ran on a very liberal, progressive change hope message that I don't think he delivered on as well as people wanted from 2008 to 2012. And you see that continue with Hillary. She ran really as a moderate. You know, Bernie was the alternative to that. And that's why there was such fire behind the people that supported him 
even though, you know, a majority of the Democratic base didn't actually know who he was. So they didn't end up voting for him. But if you look at presidential candidates now from 2008, 2012, 2016, I'm talking about not just the final nominees, but also candidates um, during the primaries. And there's only like three that stand out that had a message, right? Obama had hope. You know, Bernie had, we need a change. And Trump had make America great again. You know, and Clinton's message was not Trump. You know, and, yeah. and that's not a message. Right. Yeah, that's very real. So, I mean, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> no, like, there's also this kind of, with, with this election, that I, I, there, there's this sense that the country after this election is more uh, polarized than it's ever been before. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's true, but the way in which, you know, you have social media outlets that can collate uh, different sources of information, um, whether or not you have, you know, your uncle who's listening to Breitbart News or your people over here listening to uh, whatever, I don't know, whatever. NPR. Outlet, NPR, <laughs> something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you have these self-selected groups that are feed, like it's, it's like a feedback loop yeah. of, you know, self-confirmatory news information that might not be inherently wrong but they're feeding into very separate ideologies and i feel like a lot of people might be frustrated when you when you look at this election you see there are very disparate groups of people that view the world in very disparate ways and we're not getting any closer to communicating with one another and if anything we're getting you know further away Oh yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we have similar problems in the UK, and the UK is like seventy million people. Within England, it's sixty million people, and and in this country, there's what three hundred and sixty million. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's gigantic, and and between the two coasts, there is worlds that I've never seen, that most of us have never seen, and most of the people that write about these things have never seen. And it's, I, I understand, it's so hard to kind of bring these worlds together. I mean, ultimately what this election is, is showing that the, the elites, whether they be on the Republican side or the Democrat side, have failed to do this over the past 30 years. And then and a new voice has come up and has offered the people in the middle something that they didn't have before. So I think this election, you know, that there is there are silver linings for the result of this election. And, and I mean, they're backdrop by like terrible, horrific things that may happen. But the silver linings are that we really have to re-identify how we approach politics in this country. We have to re-identify how we can connect with, with people outside of our liberal bubbles. And so, you know, who knows whether we'll do a good job of it? Who knows in 12 years' time whether we'll be in a terrible, terrible place? But, you know, if we actually do a good job of it, if we actually invest resources into it, if we actually invest, you know, serious people to go to these areas and work out, well, how can we get you back on our side because we believe our message is, is actually the right answer to these problems that you're facing. Um, if you do this, in 12 years' time, we may have had eight years of the best president of all time that's wiped away the Trump years. So, you know, there are silver linings, um, but we can't just say what we did was right and we were conned by the Electoral College because that's the biggest cop-out. Right, yeah, it's the, it's the wrong reaction for sure. I think Democrats are guilty of doing something that they used to criticize uh, conservative Republicans for, which is focusing on these social issues, anti-gay marriage on the Republican side, anti-abortion, um, you know, you name it, the religious conservatives, all this stuff. Democrats spent a lot of time, and Hillary spent a lot of time focusing on 
you know, trans trans issues, gay issues, things like that, not focusing on the things that actually ended up winning the election, which is uh, there's a whole bunch of white people in the middle of the country. I mean, well, cry for white people, but, you know, it, there there are other people out there. And I think these cultural, social things kind of naturally take care of themselves. Obviously, you need coalitions out there. Obama ran against gay marriage and gay marriage is now the law of the land and he supports it and all that stuff. And, and that's really what Hillary chose to run on as opposed to having some kind of economic populist message, you know, which is what Bernie ran on. And, you know, I, it hasn't been confirmed yet. We don't know whether this is going to be the choice, but Trump may put the first ever gay man in his cabinet because there's talk that the, the UN ambassador uh, to the UN, which, uh, the US ambassador to the UN, which is a member of the cabinet, is going to be a gay man who was in John Bolton's uh, admin, um, uh, team when they were at the UN. And I mean, if we did that, as a, if, if the Democrats did that, they'd be lauded and being like, well, this is the best thing ever. Watch what the reaction will be when the Republicans do that. So there is this like, you know, as you say, this complete contradiction. We're doing the same thing that we criticized uh, the other sides for. Um, you know, I think that actually if, if I look at the Trump presidency and a potential Clinton presidency that will never exist now, I, I said months ago I'm going to be in opposition on November the 9th whoever gets elected, right? I'm going to be in opposition on their foreign policy. I'm going to be in opposition on their economic policy. The one thing that would be great about Clinton administration that I'd agree with are the social issues. Right. And so that's going to take a real big hit and we have to do a real good job at protecting those things. But we also have to broaden our message to change what our economic approach is going to be in order to get those votes back. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm with you, man. I, I, you know, Hillary's foreign policy was one of the reasons I didn't support her. You know, I mean, obviously I'm in New York, so it's a calculated risk. I voted for Jill Stein, but I knew Hillary was going to carry you. the state. Well, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, her foreign policy is hard. I, I believe that in four years we would be in a war in Syria with her at the helm. Yeah. And with Trump, we don't know, but you got to assume that he's going to be pretty, you know, hawkish, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I too, uh, I'm an American citizen, despite this wonderful accent, uh, so I get to vote. Uh, I wrote in a different name. Um, I didn't want to vote for Jill Stein because I don't necessarily agree with all of her uh, platforms. I knew I'd never be able to live with myself if I voted for someone who has been so damaging in the world as Hillary Clinton has on the world stage. Uh, again, I'm in New York. It was a calculated risk. Had I been in an area where um, it, it may have mattered, I might have sucked it up and swallowed my pride. Um, but I was able to to actually be a statistic in the voting registry that said this person rejected those two candidates that you that you put forward, which is going to be an important statistic as we move forward, right? 100%. Because no, true. that's the way to shift the two parties away from what they're the direction they've been moving. Right. And, and the two party system itself is, you know, that's held in place by a corporate media by all, because it's very easy to create a narrative of like they're bad, they're good, you know, vice versa. And that that's how you keep people separated. A, a diverse number of parties a third fourth fifth sixth party that's how you really form coalitions and, and create change yeah and by the electoral college system if yeah. it was popular vote then we could have third parties emerge because you know that your vote's going to count to their overall total in an electoral college system you know that they're not going to win a state mm -hmm. so it that's another problem with the electoral college system it keeps the two parties in place so you brought up something interesting about uh, all the hillary supporters and obviously she has not the greatest foreign policy. That's probably me saying a lot, but uh, I'm sitting across from three people who all voted third party or just didn't write anything. Uh, I vote for Hillary, but I guess, and you can be talking to me, I guess I'm curious, like, where do you think that disconnect exists? Like, why do you think so many people are able to look the other way on her foreign policy? 
Because I think we were kind of whitewashed about it. We were the, the, the major criticisms of her foreign policy were by Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. So people thought this is another classic Hillary agenda. People are pushing something, you know, oh Benghazi, I'll say that again, you know. <laughs> right, and, and the criticism is just Benghazi it, and it, you exactly. know, Libya, but that's just these nebulous things that people are throwing out there. You know, and, and never is the connection made between the Libya intervention directly influencing um, Russia's motives in pushing forward on the Syria, uh, on their, their side from Syria, because they didn't want US geopolitical dominance in the region. And, and we didn't need to go into Libya. I mean, I stand by it. I, there were signs that, yes, he was crushing rebel forces. But if you look at the death statistics in the areas before he was moving on Benghazi, um, it was mainly adult men who were dying, which is a traditional war. It, it wasn't going to be a genocide, but the rhetoric that we allowed to 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 push forward, we said it was going to be a genocide. I mean, Gaddafi, and this is a larger issue, and I'm going off point slightly, but Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons program in 2005 through diplomatic solutions with us. What? And then seven years later, had a bullet in his head because of us? You know, I mean, that's a terrible message to send to the world, that, that this is what US foreign policy looks like. and And that's why Russia... Uh, in my opinion, just said, okay, well, you're not having Syria. Um, we're going to do everything you can. And and it was Clinton that pushed that. Yeah, It was Clinton that pushed that. And mm -hmm. Obama wasn't going to do that without Clinton. No, it's, uh, you've obviously said really substantive stuff. Uh, it's funny because I've talked to some Clinton people and they always will pull the straw man, the emails, like you're just concerned about the emails. And like, you know, I've listened to my Gr Glenn uh, Greenwald uh, podcast and stuff. I, I know there's real <laughs> shit going on. But I don't know, it's just interesting as it being a tactic, like to hold on to those things, the same and, way Republicans do. And for like a young millennial who has, you know, my father's Jewish, I don't identify as being Jewish, but for Clinton to be so archaic on her Israel-Palestine mm. policy, yeah. to the extent where, she, you know, I, I, I wrote on my Facebook wall on, on uh, voting day, I said, you know, there's going to be one man today out the two made, no, there's going to be one candidate that could say the Arabs are getting out in droves to vote, you need to go and stop them. Meanwhile, the other candidate openly supports the Israeli prime minister who did say that on voting day in their election last year. So it's like when, when you have Hillary Clinton who's saying that she supports everything about the Netanyahu government, you're like, well, are you, you know, what difference is this? And, and I mean, there's this massive disconnect and there was a, an amazing moment actually, but from the S Sanders campaign that wasn't strong on foreign policy in the slightest here in New York at the debate that said, I actually think we need to readdress uh, unconditional support for Israel. Uh, if they do something that's an obstacle to peace, they need to uh, face the, the pressure and, and the consequences. And it was like, wow, somebody <laughs> can actually say this. Right. And the Clinton campaign could have said that absolutely could have um and i think they would have got a lot of support but they were so archaic and so neoconservative in their foreign policy i think that actually turned off a lot of voters as well right the the, the democratic party's adopted most of the policies of the the republican party you know that that's exactly right the, the republicans are constantly harping on unconditional support for israel they're our you know our undying ally we always have to support them but at what cost to the united states of course if, if israel gets attacked or whatever there's going to be support from the united states there's, there's no question about that but israel is going to be the only party between israel and palestine that is going to solve that problem they are the party in power they have people essentially in you know camps there for for lack of a better word but they they have palestinians in uh you know a prison-like environment where they're not free to to 
go around economically or do anything. It's a dire situation there. And realistically, the only party there that is going to be able to do anything to change that situation for the better is Israel by, by pulling back. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Israel-Palestine question, there's so many, uh, you know, Obama's rhetoric on it was better. Um, Obama's been saying at the UN and the US mission have been saying we're going to do something on this for two years. Which is why um, Netanyahu has shunned him. And a- Absolutely. But, yeah. you know, and actually I think something's going to happen over the next two months. They always said they were going to wait till the uh, presidency is over. They expect uh, The presidential race is over. They expected Clinton to win and then they wanted to push something forward. I think they're going to do it regardless now. They Even just today, they announced they're doing an arms embargo for South Sudan, which they blocked for two years and now realize that they have to do it because Trump won't do it. So, like, there's some change in the the way the Obama administration is pushing stuff forward. Um, but, you know, one thing about the Israel-Palestine issue, and this may be a silver lining again, and, 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 and it's slightly horrible to look at it from this way, but, you know, Steve Bannon, who got appointed, who's been put on Trump's uh, transition team, is an open anti-Semite. Yeah. Yet the Republican Jewish Congress and all of the, you know, anti-defamination um, league organizations have said, no, he's a strong supporter of Israel. He can't be an anti-Semite. <laughs> it's absolute bullshit. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and, and, and it's like, okay, Israel comes first. Actually hating Jews comes second if you like Israel. That's fine with us. <laughs> and, it's, and it's such bullshit. And, and maybe this will be the thing that actually moves Israel-Palestinian uh, kind of support away from just pure two-party support. The Democrats have to adjust their policy. And, and Keith Ellison, who's been put for the DNC chair, who's been nominated for it, um, is brilliant on these issues. He's the best person in Congress on this. Um, the organizations, the Palestinian organizations that work uh, in DC, he's their major supporter. I mean, actual for a two-state solution, actually for, for justice for Palestinian uh, people. So if he is the DNC chair, maybe that's moving towards the area we need to. If they put someone status quo, I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. We're not going to be in a good place soon. No, so what, what you're touching on is a lot of like very real, very, you know, poignant, uh, you know, palpable issues about kind of what it means to support a candidate, you know, moving past just domestic policy, you know. But also kind of what you guys touched on way back also is that Trump just touched on what most people cared about personal to them. You know what I mean? So there's like a level of, 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 of disconnect when it comes to the fact that you have a candidate that can, you know, go abroad and do whatever they wish because the, the layman has no real way of, you know, tapping into that, you know, what, cause whatever news source you're, you know, you're, you're consuming has an agenda in that regard. And they know they could use foreign policy in that way because the average person doesn't really, you know, doesn't have that experience. The average person isn't every day working with, you know, looking at Israel-Palestinian relationships and things like that. You know, and one of the things to me is the fact that you had a president just that just got elected that you, you only had to appeal to white male voters to get him. You know what I mean? Like, if you looked at any other demographic... If you would base the election on any other demographic, you know, Hillary would have won, you know, foreign policy aside. And the personal frustration for me, looking at what every, everything you say being true, is the fact that it still almost doesn't matter when it comes to our, 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 our election results. Right. Well, tr- I mean, Trump, that's make America great again, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> we're going to put America first. He literally cut out that entire portion of the argument for his supporters 
It wasn't even an issue. And some of the scariest moments of the debates when, when Syria was brought up and, and what to do there was Trump's, I mean, legitimate two-minute rambles about no-fly zones and, well, we got to protect, uh, you know, we have to set up a, a green zone or whatever, whatever he was saying. That's just basically impossible in the, in the landscape of what's going on in Syria. It's going to cost trillions of dollars. It's going to involve U.S. troops on the ground. But he, you know... That stuff that I notice as somebody that's not supporting either one of them. Mm-hmm. But to your point, right, it's very easy to just go, we're going to make America great again. Yeah. We're going to make America first. And you just cut out that entire part of the argument. And d- liberals were willing to forgive, like you mentioned, Israel, a, a yeah. number of different things that, that Hillary was going to do as well. And so I guess my general question is kind of like what you what, what you kind of hinted at, that was almost a mistake to focus so much on, you know, uh, from, from a strategic standpoint, it was almost a mistake to focus so much on social issues that were relevant to everybody else in America. You know what I mean? Like, that's a scary thought that looking at and keying into these other groups, like, uh, you know, comforting Muslim Americans and talking about cr- criminal justice reform. However, you know, uh, basically platform might have been on that, uh, you know, talking to Latino, Hispanic uh, Americans. To, the, to, to a fault, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. That's the thing. You have those groups already. And I think yeah. it's important, you know, that Trump ran on this fearful rhetoric, like you were saying. You know, Hillary rightfully so came out and said, we need more love in the world and all that stuff. And that that does translate to her base. But she already has her base. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to pick up on that like specific point, and then I want to go back to what Trump said on Syria. Um, Hillary, you know, when she was asked, there was a debate where it's like, well, actually, I think America's actually great. I think we're doing great. We've done great progress. Yeah. What does that do to a white disenfranchised mm-hmm. voter in the Midwest watching it saying, yeah, you, know, awful. you know what? Bullshit. I've lost my jobs. My house had to be foreclosed. This city is, you know, 40% of us don't have a job. I mean, what? You know, we don't have clean water here in Flint. How is this country great? And I mean, you know, it was so out of touch and it's, it is a massive disappointment, I think, for, for the people on her campaign that those messages couldn't resonate with the targets they were going for, the actual, the extra voters. And, you know, I saw a tweet yet the other day about the, when Trump mocked the disabled reporter mm-hmm. and the tweet said something like, I will for, for the life of me never, ever be able to understand how this wasn't the end of his campaign. Oh, I saw that same thing. And, yeah. and it was like, yeah, like... <laughs> Me neither, but we're going to have to, like, because it's like our assumptions, I think, were wrong with the way these things are going. You know, that that point really signifies that we need to change our approach on this. Um, You know, and like you you did say Trump's uh, Syria plan was incoherent, which it is. He was actually the only one in the entire debate, so in the primaries and in the presidential that said something that actually made sense. And he said... We need to stop arming these people in Syria. We don't know who they oh, are. Absolutely, yeah. No one else said that. Yeah. And actually, if I was going to be able to do something about it, that would be the first thing I'd do. Stop weapons going there. Because the more you fund people, that you you know give weapons to people you don't know, the, the further away a political su- solution comes. So, you know, for all of his terrible foreign policy mm. statements, he said one thing that really, really stood out. No, you're absolutely you know, right about that. Um, but, you know, I mean, you say, how do you you know, get this other population mm. and, and what do you do? I mean, Not even necessarily get, you know what I mean? Because that still makes it kind of like almost like a partisan issue. Like mm. how do we, you know, bring them to our side? Like how do you just have that? For, for example, uh, Van Jones just did, did, did this, uh, you know, uh, 
piece where he went to middle America, went into uh, get ready for 40,000 of those over the next stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I know. But, yeah. You know, is, is that what you, at the end of the day, what you have to do? Cause when you can't trust, you know, uh, the pundits because they do have their agendas. They do, they are trying to, uh, you know, enforce whatever candidate they believe will be the best, whatever future they think is for, is for the best. So is, is that the future where you have to actually, you know, have these, you know, interventions where you just go sit down and explain, like, this is what this group of people is feeling that you might not have access to? I mean, you know, the there have been those pieces done throughout the election and all of them indicated, there were very few of them, but all of them indicate that they thought Trump was going to win. Right. And I'm, I'm reading in one of the books now, it's called A Wild Ride Through Trump Land. Uh, it's by Andrew Zajcek or something. Um, and he... Um, I mean, it's incredible. He like talks with people that have no reason to vote for Trump, but vote for him because they, they, he tells it how it is. They don't trust the Clintons. They don't trust the political elite. They don't think he can follow through on what he's going to say. They wish he'd shut up from time to time. But perhaps he's the best chance they've got. So, you know, understanding this and it's something we never did. And, and Gary Young, I was telling Evan before we came in, who is the best journalist alive, um, who was the Guardian's US correspondent. Um, he lived here for like 10 years, left last year, wrote this incredible piece on what it means to be a black man in America, looking at it from an outside perspective, having a son who's grown up as a black American, you know, and this, this juxtaposition. Um, and how Obama's failed certain areas. And, and he came back this year. He did a month in Indiana in a small town uh, talking to local voters in the run-up to the election. He released a piece yesterday that was just unbelievable. And it was just like everything that needs to be said was in that piece. Um, and now we're going to have a million people go and try and do the same right. thing in a really incoherent manner. Um, but we've got to understand, we've got to appeal to these people um, we've got to stop seeing them as the other. There was a terrible Jamil Bowie article on Slate today, so yesterday saying there's no such thing as a good Trump voter. <laughs> if you write something like that, just right. end it. Like, what, I mean, what is the well, point? Right, but that's the exact wrong, wrong reaction. Yeah, yeah. Right. You can you can keep dismissing the exact block of people that cost you the election or you can actually try to figure out what happened. Well, then, but here's here's the issue that I know a lot of people are having. So. You're 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 a disenfranchised person, and you're black like myself. You might be uh, Muslim American. You might be uh, gay, LGBTQ, whatever have you. And you just saw a like we've covered already. Millions of people endorse this person that flagrantly disrespected your entire identity and your entire being. And it might not be that they hold those beliefs, but as a lot of people say, they they thought it was acceptable. It wasn't a game changer, you know. Um, now you could say the same thing. You, you guys made the point about you know Hillary Clinton and both their foreign policies, but like as we know, like the average person doesn't really have you know access to that type of information. So it's almost like how do I rationalize this large swath of America that heard that and said, eh, like all right, like it's not, it's not the cleanest thing, but but we could but we could roll with it, you know. And we know, and it's not like just like it was talk. Like a lot of people use that rhetoric as fuel to go commit, you know, hate-based crimes. Like, hate-based harassment is up throughout the U.S. to the point where they actually ask, please ask, like, Donald, like, please ask them to stop. But, like, in every school, like at Middlebury College, at a University of Pennsylvania, anywhere that you have, there's been hate-based harassment, you know, filed. And these aren't, like, poor, disenfranchised yeah. 
people in middle America committing these crimes that Ivy League. So it's like you gave these people the green light, and now I'm suffering for it. The people that I know are suffering from it. So how am I supposed to rationalize that? Because you were looking out for yourself. You know that that's the dissonance I know a lot of people are having right now, to the point where it's like I'm tired of having to try to coddle to the middle American white man when, you know, the suburban or urban or whatever have you is. You know, facing all this type of harassment. That's the dissonance that I feel like a lot of people are uh, experiencing. Yeah, rightfully so, yeah. I think. You know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, there's there was a, a, a quote that I have here from um, somebody that wrote for the LA Times who said, and this is to bring Brexit in, said, Brexit and Trumpism are the very, very wrong answers to legitimate questions that urban elites have refused to ask for 30 years. Right? So we know they're the wrong answer and we know the negative consequences that people are suffering now and we we see the rise of racist attacks and xenophobic attacks and you know and just horrifying things taking place but we can't just isolate these and say that these have just popped up overnight mm -hmm. it didn't at all the shooting in north carolina didn't happen because of trump yeah. we've been living in this society where there's been this undercurrent for a long time and now this is kind of mobilizing it and bringing it to the, the forefront, which is scary. But we failed to address it completely. And the Democrat Party, as much as the Republican Party, are to blame because there, there hasn't been enough pushback on on, on things. I, I think Obama's been really bad on it. I really think he's been bad on it. I think he, he didn't do much about Black Lives Matter. He didn't do much about Dakota Pipeline. You know, these kind of things, it's... He like his rhetoric's wonderful when he has to, but otherwise on these social issues he has the force of a gnat. You know, it's it's nothing, and and now we come into an era where we have somebody that's not even going to give us the rhetoric to protect us, and that's why it's really worrying. But what we have to do, I think, is is push forward. Um, we have to protect where we can, um, but really identify our failures and work out how we can push forward and actually address those as well, if that makes sense. No, 100%. What, what you're saying is very interesting because like, I agree with you, but I guess it's hard, you know, as a black person too, it's just, it's hard hearing that like, no, we have to step back and look at this with the entire context of like what it may be. And and like, it, it sucks because I'm, I'm saying this from a very privileged position, I, I understand that. Um, I am a white straight male who has social mobility. You and, are, and to and, <laughs> and that every, every white person now has to like say that. Just yeah, like yeah. Pre Preface everything they say just to make up that's what I want to But <laughs> but you you know so and and it's and it sucks and and this is why I was always very careful when I said that there were silver linings of the Trump presidency because they are just that silver linings in mm -hmm. in a kind of ball of shit, right? Um, <laughs> But to ignore that there are reasons why this ball of shit's been created and to ignore that there are silver linings and opportunities to engage, um, I think would be the wrong approach. And it would be the kind of approach that, you know, Jamal Bowie is saying everyone's whose Trump sports bad and let's, you know, I mean, what does that lead to? So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, but there's, there's also things that the Obama government could have done um, domestically and in foreign policy related issues that would have actually been safeguards against a Trump presidency. I mean, and this is changing subject, but moves to kind of foreign policy. We still have the authorization of yeah. military force that any government, any administration can use without having to go to Congress. 
Yeah, you're handing over a, a domestic spying program and a you know a foreign drone program and all this stuff. It's, the the you know the biggest national security apparatus to a guy you don't trust with it at all. Yeah, it's unbelievable yeah. how arrogant the Democrats were to think that we'll use this, we'll use this. Oh shit! Now they have to use it. Yeah, we yeah. can trust us. We're okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it is it is the critiques that that like liberals have failed to acknowledge that it's like. We're right. We're right. We, you can trust us. We'll do it in the right way. Oh shit! Now they've got it. You know, and and so you know, on the kind of social and, and racial issues, um, whilst maybe they would have been harder to affect legitimate change without having control of Congress, I don't think we pushed hard enough at all. Mm -hmm. um, and probably many of those reasons, I think maybe the last two years of an Obama administration was gearing up to ensure that Clinton got in. And so it's been a missed opportunity for sure. Dang, y'all are going to make me want to take my Obama poster down. <laughs> uh, I would take Obama back in two seconds. Abs you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and he's. Makes no I'd take Hillary in two seconds, but it's, you know, that's not the situation we're in. Yeah, I'd maybe take Hillary in four seconds. No, but, <laughs> but, you know, Obama is a statesman. Um, he is an unbelievable inspiration to so many people. Um, and when he walks into the halls of the UN, Everybody wants to be in that room, right? Like you arrive at the General Assembly at 7 a.m. to try and get a seat on the balcony to see him. And you do it because you're so impressed and you're in such awe of how he delivers his speech and how he holds himself. Um, and he has the best media team of all time that deserve Oscars because they make him out to be the most personal, fun guy in the world. He probably is really fun. But a lot of that is whitewashing policies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I don't necessarily think his policies have been the greatest. Obviously, he's made great strides with things like the Iran deal, which was a massive accomplishment, but he hasn't gone far enough on, on many other issues. Uh, now, when Trump comes into the UN, people are going to get up at 6 a.m. To, to go and sit in those um, things just to see the shit show. Right. Um, and, and that's the, one of the things that's going to be horrible. Like, he is not a statesman. He yeah. does not. It's like Boris Johnson. I mean, it's just, a, oh, it's embarrassing. But I think that's part of the appeal. Like, you know, people are going to try to diagnose. And of course, there's economic issues and there's all these other things that factor into it. But there is an element of people in the middle of the country that are just like, yeah, I want to see him get up there and tell these people that I don't like at all. Fuck up. Let, let him take his pants off in front of the UN. You know what I mean? It's like that type of and just visceral thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the lies of his campaign fed off the anger right so yeah. i think really what the challenge is for us is to work out how to feed off the anger without lying but appeal to people so how do we get past this right-wing fascist populism and actually say coherent legitimate things that have answers to the, the this anger you know in in england um for brexit the leave campaign has said the eu cost us 350 million pounds a week we're going to spend all of that on the NHS, yeah. the National Health Service. Yeah. And what they did was they put buses to go around London mm -hmm. and they had this big bus that said, 350 million, leave the EU, it will go to the NHS. Uh, in September, they said, yeah, no, there's no extra funding for it. <laughs> you know, it's complete bullshit. But these lies work really well. So we have to work out how better to challenge these lies, but how to actually feed off the anger by giving coherent... And and, and solutions. There's something I talked about on, on the last, I guess it's MSP, my podcast, Mandatory Sam's great, podcast. Great podcast. Uh, thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, MSP 104. It was like the one we did right after, you know, the election. We were kind of breaking it down. And, you know, my thoughts about it, 
that I wanted to tell people that were listening is like, don't be hyperbolic about this. You know, there's going to be legitimate, actual policy concerns and things that Trump does that you can be a critical thinker about and actually lay out the case as to why they're not good. You don't have to say he's Hitler. You don't have to say, you know, that's that's taking it to a level that it doesn't need to go to that. You've already lost people with that. Tell them why the policy is not right. And there's going to be plenty of opportunity to do that. I think that's kind of what you're talking about there. That's what happened with Brexit. Yeah, completely agree. Um, He, I mean, I think rhetoric, he just says it in a way that you're horrified that he says it. But I don't know if his presidency is going to be that different from George Bush's. And George Bush's presidency was really bad. So, (laughs) you know, this isn't like, oh, he's going to be fine. It's going to be very bad. But it's not going to be the end of the world. And anybody who... I think it could be the end of the world. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Anyone who says, anyone who says you can never trust Donald Trump with the nuclear codes, um, that's the best argument ever to get rid of our nuclear weapons. Sure. And... The fact we haven't done it knows that he's not going to do anything, right? Nuclear weapons, we have them because they're a deterrent. Everyone understands this. We, we wouldn't have nuclear weapons if we could risk having a crazy person like Donald Trump be elected. So please stop using that argument because it's I, not true. I, I hope that's the case. I, I would love to believe that. I, you believe know, it. To me, I think there's something to the idea though that people believe that because the united states has existed in this form for you know hundreds of years and we're going to you know that all these things are in place that it has to keep going i don't necessarily think that's the case and i think people maybe should be more concerned about that you know i i I hope you're right i don't think we're going to go into nuclear war with trump but the possibility exists and i think to just assume that be you know because there's that many nuclear weapons we kind of figured that a, a nut like Trump could get in and he's not going to use them. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Well, well, if we're in a nuclear war, we're all dead. So oh, there's, there's no point worrying about <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, you know, I, I honestly think if we're, if we're truly scared as a country about Donald Trump using our nuclear weapons, and if the Democrat Party wants to say that even once, they have to make that a policy uh, platform for them to run on next time. Otherwise, it's the same arrogant approach that they've took throughout the election saying you can trust us with them but not these guys if 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 we can't trust one single person with them we shouldn't have them because yeah. we could all die well and that's right so, and that's, the, that's the conversation that should have started the day after the election it's like if you don't like these things what about this i, I mentioned this on my podcast today what about the super delegates that that liberals were very pissed off about in the democratic primary process start talking about that now i haven't heard yeah. anybody mention the word super delegates yeah. and you're not going to hear about it for another three years it's, it's really uh, upsetting though because if we had the super delegates on the republican side yeah we wouldn't have had su- trump and if we didn't have the super delegates we would have Sanders and then we'd be having a very different conversation right <laughs> right um just to touch on like a little less election more of like uh Donald Trump's actual policies and stuff you were pointing we were talking earlier I was talking earlier with Chris and you were pointing out like a certain doomsday scenario where if like we actually did a terrorist attack did happen in the United States like some like Trump would have the chance to actually ensure all these racist xenophobic policies and stuff yeah well i mean if you look at what the reaction after 9-11 i there was i can't remember her name but there was one democratic congresswoman in california i can't i i think it was barbara lee maybe yeah it was barbara lee Lee, absolutely one person voted against the the use of force and and who on the democrat side was whipping up support 
It was Clinton. Yeah. So, you know. um, but so the point being, and you know, like you're talking about the democratic arrogance of like, well, you could trust us with this stuff, but now it's in the hands of somebody that, you know, you pull the Democrats. Most of them are going to say they can't trust him. What if, you know, that's the situation we're in now. What if something nine, 11, you know, some kind of terrorist attack happens People are going to rally around the president. You just think of the rhetoric that took place w- with Bush. It was like, you know, 90% approval rating for months after that. And people were like, we have to rally around the president. Well, what's going to happen? I-, I guarantee you a majority of people are going to say, we, as particularly in Congress, are going to say, we have to rally around this guy, you know? And and I think that that's, I mean, it's a real problem for this country. And, and it's increasingly a problem for the UK that we're just moving towards a complete militaristic society. You, mm-hmm. you know, I, my friends who watch NFL or NBA games when I when they come here are just like, why are we stopping for three minutes to salute our troops? I, I don't really yeah. get it, you know, and like it, it filters throughout everything. So it's so hard to make that a partisan issue. But with Trump at the helm, actually, maybe there is an opportunity to say, we're not going to let you do this. Like, we don't trust you. We should have done that with Bush. Yeah. Um, we weren't in a position to do that. Maybe maybe we can actually look at it. Rather than, you know, voting because we're emotive patriots, we can actually say, I don't trust this guy to do anything or do any foreign policy reaction that involves the use of U.S. troops overseas. You know, m- my girlfriend's brother is in the, uh, the Navy SEALs. My cousin is in the Army. I don't want my congressman to let Donald Trump do anything with those people. Um, you know, I don't want, I didn't want Bush in exactly the same way. I don't want Obama, you know, I prefer them not to be there. Um, so, you know, I think that if something bad does happen again, I just go back to the, the, the checks and balances that we didn't put in place that the Democrat party failed to put in place. And so now it's maybe even more important to push back on this and actually get Democrats in Congress to say, we were wrong here. Yeah, well. and that's a progressive platform. You know, that's the thing that was lacking in this election. If you, it, Hillary kept saying, "I'm a, I'm a progressive that likes to get." Wait, things. wait, do, do the impression. I like the impression. I'm a progressive that likes to get things done, which is just a moderate. You know, that's a moderate. You're running yes. as a moderate. And what you're talking about, these things that are actual structural changes you can make to the way the government functions, run on that. That's a progressive ticket. Yeah, do that. And I mean, you know, if you ask Americans to suggest how much of the u.s federal budget was spent on its military and then do a kind of comparison on how much do russia and china spend do you think spending's reduced these kind of questions they would get it so horrifically wrong well we have to make the military great Great again yeah absolutely but we spend 60 percent of our federal budget yeah, that which is unbelievable, right. and no one ever has that question to say this is wrong, and, and this is again a progressive platform. But you know, if if we're scared about giving people like Donald Trump the power to use that, then we need to put checks and balances in place to ensure that doesn't happen in the first place. Totally, totally, it works both ways. If if you want to have a freedom, you have to let everybody else have that freedom, and if you don't think anybody should have that ability, then that's what it is. I agree. What is this? Did we disagree? No, (laughs) not once. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the number one game show. Uh, It's another brand new spanking edition of Hate On, the only game show where you, the contestant, are given the opportunity to shit on something that is overwhelmingly liked, revered, and appreciated by all your friends, family, and people you come into contact with. But instead of getting chewed out for it, you get rewarded. The rules of the game go as follows. Using the extremely scientific method of polling, polling, that's interesting, 
uh, my Facebook page. I've collected over 200 of the most undeniably loved or politically correct things that range from JFK to the New York Times all the way to bacon and jacuzzis with pretty women and men. Based on the amount of universal likability and potential backlash for hating on, each thing will be worth one to five points. The more points, the more controversial the thing. For example, Jello would be worth one point, whereas affirmative action would be worth three. Maybe four. Maybe five. I don't know. Uh, these things will be thrown into a hat, which will then be drawn by each contestant. Whoever has the most points after, say, two rounds will win. There is a caveat. Each contestant is allowed to steal one topic from each other contestant once a game. And if they offer a better opinion or argument regarding the topic chosen, they get the points. So let's meet our contestants. Guest number one. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm from New York. <laughs> All right, man. That's a little weird. Okay. Contestant number two. Do I have to say my real name? No, no. no. You're good. Okay, I'm Bob from Virginia. Nice. All right. All right, Bob. <laughs> we know what you think. Uh, yeah. Evan. Evan? Yeah. All right, cool. I know you. Yeah. Look familiar. All right, so first contestant, Chris, yeah. pick a number between one and ten. Seven. Seven. Oh. All right. Lucky number seven. So I'm going to give you John Oliver. I have to hate on John you Oliver? To, you have to hate Ooh. on John Oliver. Uh, I, okay, wow. I can hate on John Oliver. That, that's okay. And but I do enjoy his commentary is, for the most part. But Is I, it because he's English? <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, definitely not. Like, I've had the same criti- criticism of John Oliver that I've had of uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, where I think they make a point ninety percent of the way, and then they refuse to kick it over the goal line by making it a specific goal for people to follow. They they'll get almost all the way there and then they go well but i'm just a comic though you know we're just making jokes here and they never actually motivate people to go do something with the exception of potentially the you know 9-11 first responders with john stewart so i think john john oliver does the same thing where he'll tell you all the facts he'll get you all riled up but then he doesn't go and you know what you should do to stop that go do this this or the other thing and they refuse to take it over the goal line so that's that's why i hate on john oliver. well done wow yeah. that's two points though I'll take two. I didn't have talked about this a lot. Uh, I didn't like how he treated third-party candidates towards the end. Like I understand yeah. the dire circumstance of choosing between Hillary or Donald Trump, but it's like just shat on the third-party idea. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, all right, Bob from Virginia, choosing number between one <laughs> yes. and ten. Um, six. Six. Yes. Hate on J.J. Abrams. Director of Star Wars. Um, not stuff. a big fan of Star Wars. Um, so I'm gonna have to hate on him. Wasn't the production office in like England or some shit? Yeah. Star Wars was like the worst thing as a child that people liked. You know, like I liked other things. I hated <laughs> Star Wars. It just doesn't make sense. I just don't get it. Why did they do the last three movies first and then the first three <laughs> movies last? <laughs> that makes no true. sense to very, me. Very, very true. Good point. Good point. Uh, all right. This is a solid argument. Yeah, got solid. three points. Three points there. He got three points. I only got two for hating on John Oliver. And, and, Oliver looks and yours weird, was like a those. lot more well thought out than mine. <laughs> it was very well thought out. Right. Sorry, guys. I made, I made the point system before. I just assumed the 50% of people probably don't like John Oliver to begin with. So I didn't think it was yeah. that hard. My bad. Uh, third contestant, Evan. Uh, one four. to ten. Four. Donald Glover. Hmm. Hmm. Creator of the hit show Atlanta. Atlanta. Mm. Is that good? It's very good. Um, damn, this is pretty hard. Digging a hole for yourself. You know what? We said this before. I think he's taking all the good work 
away from other black actors. Like, Agreed. He's Lando Calrissian. Isn't he? Isn't he going to be a Spider-Man or something like that? Like he made Atlanta. Now he wants to rap. Now he wants to be a comedian. Like you have to give other people room to operate. You can't do everything well. Like that's just not fair. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's greedy. And also his body shaped strange. <laughs> All right. His arms are too long for his torso. All right. Mm. Three, 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 three points. Wow. Sorry, Chris. That's fine. Two I points is really third. difficult. That's okay. yeah. That's right. the, the, over, like, the overly excited introduction for myself. That's <laughs> hurt me, I feel like. Um, all right. Next round. One through ten. Pick a number. Uh, eight. Glenn Greenwald. Of no, the intercept. I'm not gonna hate on can't, Glenn Greenwald. Can't do it. Like He's Glenn like he wants yeah. to write for the intercept. Yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah, I'm not gonna hate on. I'll, I'll pick Any two. takers? Give me another one. No, 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 oh, okay. no, no. You got what you got. I think you're gonna <laughs> lose though. <laughs> I feel um, like that's gonna happen. I will not hate on Glenn. Oh my God. You guys with your whistleblower love. I know you guys love those whistleblowers. <laughs> is, that, is that? Could Obama pardon Chelsea Manning and? He should. Snowden? He should. Yeah, she actually appealed. Uh, this week to try to get her sentence reduced from 35 years to the six and a half or whatever that she's been in, uh, you know, military prison. Yeah, no, I, I know you feel strongly about it. A hundred percent. He yeah. should. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, this isn't fun anymore. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> cause, Cause I don't think Donald Trump's going to pardon those. Yeah. I think she's going to have to wait another four years so, for sure. Yeah. So yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think it'd be a, I think it'd be a great move and it'd send the right message. But again, Obama has been very harsh on whistleblowers and he's been a very secretive uh, administration. Yep. So Absolutely. Evan, you're going to hate on uh, Glenn hey. Greenwald? I barely gonna... even know Glenn Greenwald, to be honest. That so might... there we go. Like, that, that might be the winning answer. I don't know. I see him on Atlanta. I see him on Star Wars. Round. Glenn Greenwald wants to talk shit about the American political landscape, yet he lives in Brazil. There what is. is that about? Oh, unbelievable. All right. <laughs> he criticized Clinton during the campaign. Can you believe that? <laughs> How right, dare you? Right, sarcasm. Right. <laughs> you don't win any points. All right, Chris got four points. That was great. Thank, Thank you. Back four. Back Six, <laughs> points. Six points with Chris. Uh, Bob from Virginia. Thank you. Uh, pick a number two, 110. Uh, one. Is that between? Actually, two. Because one and ten, it's not between. Okay. Hate on. Keith Ellison, representative from uh, uh, Minnesota. I representative I or senator? That, that was tricky. Did you do that deliberately? Yeah, I told It wasn't on the list. I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I can hate on him because he's trying to be the DNC chair. So that means he can't be an effective congressman. But that's me really clutching at straws and I won't, I won't do it. Evan, you, you have to go. I feel like that was good. Yeah, give him the points. It's more well thought out than anything right. I could possibly. Four points. Oh, so yeah, now it's on seven. you. Now it's on you, Bob. Seven points for uh, Bob in the seven lead. Seven points? Did you just make that up? No, he had four points for the question. Three plus four equals seven. That's oh, it. seven points total. Seven points yeah. total. Yeah. Oh, I thought he got seven so for Keith Ellison. Right. You're at um. Look about three. You're at three. I guess. Yeah, I think I guess too. <laughs> All right. So you, you want to win this one? Or you want to tie it? I'd rather. W yeah, you know what you're gonna get if you go for the five. You're gonna give me like affirmative action or something. No, like I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a better one. Uh, LeBron James just donated 2.5 million dollars to the African American Smithsonian Museum and also has given money to college black kids to go to college. Uh, he's a champion, uh, and he's been in the news recently. Uh, are, you, are you just giving me the black guys on the list? Is that that's what's going on here? I guess I, it, I, it, I, it happened that way. It's not about race. I don't get J.J. Ab Abrams. I don't, I don't get Keith. No Ellison. man, I'm trying to give you a hard one. <laughs> Hate on LeBron James right now. Do it. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like, uh, LeBron James right now, like in the past, like, I don't know. He's don't, don't you have to say the word posse? 
There no, we go. Right, we're gonna get that. That's after a joke. Right. <laughs> that that get the posse stuff. No, I mean, not a fan of his game. I think he walks strange. His feet go too far out. Um, his hairline is an easy target. Um, he's too big to be a real human. Uh, Space Jam. Space Jam potentially Monstar. Um, he's my least favorite of the Super Friends. Really, he is. I like Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, and Carmelo uh, more. Carmelo represented our nation yeah. in the uh, Olympics. Mm. That's a real American. Uh, Chris Paul is in the State Farm commercials. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of Sprite. LeBron's in that. I'm going to keep throwing stuff until right, something cool. you sticks. Got it. You got it. You got it. All right. All right. All right. All right. Five points, I guess. Okay. So, okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. This feels rigged somehow. <laughs> all right. Um, Dope music, man. Yeah, it was pretty dope music. I thought so myself. All right, I'm just going to run through random pop culture things just to see what you guys' opinion are. I think they're kind of fun. Um, so, Game of Thrones Season 7 spoilers were released on Reddit a couple weeks ago. A lot of media outlets picked up on it and ran with them. Thoughts on that? You guys are all Game of Thrones fans. Bob, are, are you back to... I can be back to JD, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Bob from Virginia is really angry now because he felt he got robbed from that. So you're just contributing to... He took to, his country back. Don't worry yeah. about Bob. He's good. <laughs> Um, Game of Thrones spoilers. Um, you know, uh, some people have read the books, so we were waiting for the next book without these bloody spoilers. So we're a bit pissed off. Um, I think it's stupid. Why would you release that? Um, like it's just a it's uh, clickbait. A whistleblower technically released it. Um, <laughs> I just you guys are into that stuff. He was doing a public good. Uh, I don't know. I showed no self control. I just straight up I, went I, right into no, it. No, I didn't read it. No. Yeah, I actually didn't even see them. So I, I, I won't be sharing that with you guys. No, I did see no. one picture, though. I don't know if we're like actually saying what the spoilers are, but I mm. saw one picture that was released a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty but... dope art, if that is the thing. Yeah, and that's fine. You know, I kind of figured that that thing was going to happen, but... All right. Um, I just, I've just been very upset with you because he's been walking around this entire, however many weeks, with just like this bomb that he could yeah, drop. Yeah, I just enriched my uranium of... Spoiler. Like he could just ruin anybody's life at any point. Yeah, but I, I when I like when the first few seasons came out, I when I was in Kenya actually, I read all the books because I had nothing to do. Um, because like when you're when the lights go out at seven, like, and sometimes electricity dies, I was like, all right, I have my Kindle. That's it. Um, so I read the books and I showed real good self restraint and I didn't tell anyone the spoilers. So if anyone tells me it now, I'll be furious. <laughs> all right. uh, I got two more, two more quick things. Uh. Megan Kelly, uh, the, the topic is kind of, is she bae or not bae? I don't know. But <laughs> Megan Kelly shut down a Trump supporter uh, who said that your Japanese internment camps were a precedent for a Muslim registry. Uh, and, you know, apparently Glenn Beck has been really outspoken about not supporting Trump. And I'm kind of like, what the fuck's going on? Any, any thoughts on that? Uh, I didn't see that uh, Megan Kelly situation. I mean, she is right, though. Like, whoever the questioner is, it is precedent. <laughs> it's not a good precedent, yeah. but it is definitely something that, you, you know you possibly could be concerned about um good for her doing that she's she's sort of developed a little bit of a spine yeah but she i think she did that over the course of the election obviously she stood up to trump uh, you know to an extent more than anybody else at fox news and she asked some i think legitimate questions at the debates she's sort of been her own person for the most part you know and even with the roger ailes stuff yeah, I think um, Megyn Kelly, the fact that, uh, you know, despite the fact that I disagree with many of her policies and her views on in life, um, actually showed, like, she broke from conformity um, from, like, the, the electorate or the, the uh, swath of population that she speaks or represents. Nobody did that 
from the other side, right? Yeah. You know, and, and maybe we needed that. So I do respect her a lot. Um, as I said, I don't agree with her on a lot of things, but respect that she can be her own person and say, you know, when this isn't right, this isn't right. And I'm going to call out. I would say Bill Maher has been a pretty, you know, reasonable voice on, on the, obviously he's very Ish. liberal. He, Ish. Oh, yeah, he, no, but yeah, he, oh, we oh, have we, our liberal, I'm liberal racist. But I do think he's somebody that is broken from you know the the standard conversation. Oh, on, that's fair. On the that's, left, fair you know? that's fair. That's definitely fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I want to say, I th- I think um, Megyn Kelly, what she said, not that it wasn't president. She said that's that's gonna terrify people. Like, don't go on TV and say I'm trying to help you out. It's like just like don't <laughs> you can't do that. It's basically what she was saying. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Glenn Beck's been really funny though. It's like as if he was visited by like some archangel who told him that you're not going to heaven unless you change up the shit you've done. And he's like just been trying to make good on all of it. He's like in his own Will Smith movie or something. <laughs> You know, Will Smith kind of just has to like. Yeah, well, I think he. I mean, I think he looks at Trump kind of as like a Frankenstein, you know, monster that he helped create. I mean, he he escalated a lot of that rhetoric on the right, and then kind of you know he's doing whatever his own his own show now. But he, uh, yeah, he was at the forefront of this with the Tea Party movement and all that stuff. And like we said, Trump is a a, a hair away from yeah. from that. He just he turned the flame up just a little bit more. But he he's saying things that started in that part of the echo chamber you know um and the last thing uh just because we've been talking a lot about rhetoric i thought it was interesting that this happened and jd had mentioned it that legendary coach and current gm of the new york <laughs> knickerbockers i like saying it because it almost sounds like i'm saying a slur but i'm not uh phil jackson finds so himself- do i i love saying it shut up Trump. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> phil jackson finds himself in some hot water after referring to lebron's business partners and friends as posse uh lebron himself ended up standing before media to denounce phil jackson for the use of the word and went as far to imply that Bill Jackson himself may use worse language behind closed doors, implying that he's maybe a racist. What what is wrong with the word posse? Can I ask? Because I kind of like heard this. So <clears throat> I, I actually like seen a lot about it. So basically, it's just I think it's the most classic example of a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Posse is literally a word. Like if you look up like multiple definitions, it both means group of friends and like group of criminals. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. So it's like one of those things where it's like. And it obviously does have a little bit of, like, I think Stan Van Gundy came out and said, like, I use the term. If I'm look thinking about it, I don't ever really use it about white people. I think it's one of those things Phil Jackson probably just thought as, like, just a fine thing. That it's him and his, you know, hip, you know, posse. Right. What, you know what they have is what they do. I don't think he meant anything. For, it, it was di- in the context of a dismissive conversation. Like, whatever you're doing is just holding up, you know, basketball operations. When we know LeBron James probably, like... Like, he's probably planning on giving, you know, millions of dollars to the African-American Museum with his friends and stuff like Wait, that. Wait, I wonder if that was planned. That was great PR for him to do that right <laughs> afterwards. But, yeah, so I think it's just like a general um, misunderstanding that a lot, that's kind of like come at the center of like a, a larger conversation about the PC culture and about respect and uh, what you call certain people, things like that. But, I mean, I suppose there's also questions about perception and assumption, right? So, if you know lebron and his his friends perceive that to be a racial term then then we need to address that right mm-hmm. uh if uh phil jackson had the assumption that it wasn't a racial term and the perception is that it is we also need to address that i don't think i don't know but i don't think phil jackson used it to imply anything racial uh, as you say mm-hmm. stan van Gundy probably 
is probably the same. He probably uses it, doesn't realize the racist connotations, if there are any, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have the conversation. I don't think it should be, a mountain should be made out of a molehill, though. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think I've heard the word posse used in 10 years. I don't remember the last That's time what I've I mean. heard it like, It's up, just you know? this weird yeah. kind of thing where it's like, so I, I, under, I get it, like, because people generally code language. You know, like, mm. there are a lot of words that we use in our everyday life. That thug, are, whatever, during know, the protest. Thug, gang, monkey, things like that, yeah. that inherently these aren't racist terms, but you could use them in a particular context in a particular way. It ha it's going to have racial connotations. It's going to, you know. Um, Posse is a weird one because, I mean, it's a synonym for gang. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, you could use it in that form or fashion, but nobody really uses it. To begin with, right. Well, Trump said "ombre" is during yeah, the debate like, or whatever he said. That's like you knew what he meant. Yeah, it's like, so, geez, get out more. Stop watching it, John Wayne movies. Yeah, yeah. No, pretty much. That's exactly what it is. It's like, and there's that level of disconnect. I think that can result in, you know, a microaggression. And I think that's a see. But it, it, this this conversation, like the I, microaggression I conversation, conversation, all the stuff. This is part of the re like let's let's say the reality that's part of the reason why part of the backlash against hillary and i'm using air quotes liberalism and all that stuff that is it isn't a no like i get that it's a relevant conversation in a lot of ways mm -hmm. but it's also an annoying conversation after a while too yeah. where you can't say anything but like I'm, some offense being so taken, glad we got know? here but but just to you know i i i think i don't know what phil jackson's reaction to lebron's comments were but He's going to be smug. He's not going to give a shit. Okay, but <laughs> the best thing he could do is say, I'm very sorry that it was taken in that, mean that meaning. It wasn't my intention. I will we'll be very careful using those words again, understanding how it can be taken out of context or perceived. Yeah. End of the conversation. But then to like chastise him mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. If, if he doesn't do that, sure. But if he does, if his approach to it is actually, sorry. Yeah, I know. In his heart of hearts, he knows he didn't mean and, anything and, by it. Like, and this is the thing. I think, you know, even if he says that, the reaction's still going to be kind uh, of them. Totally. Right, right. Him. He so, could just tweet, oh, sorry, man, I didn't know. Yeah. Or like, I didn't mean to uh, imply anything by that. Right. Here's the one of the things, though. Like, when it comes yeah. to, like, the microaggression conversation, it's this weird thing almost where I feel like people set up, like, so if if you commit a, like a if you have like make a microaggression, the the implication is that therefore you've committed an act of racism. Who commits acts of racism? Racists. What is a racist in America? You're a closet KKK member. Do all there, there, there's that link. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it immediately goes and immediately escalates in that fashion. You know. So it is it, this weird thing where it's like you can commit a my everybody commits micro I commit microaggression everybody does it you know in their everyday life just because that's how I did we're like three on the podcast no 100 like there was actually like a study you know uh I couldn't Harvard tell you was the Harvard one no, no you think about the other a different yeah. thing. just say it was Harvard it, it gives it more <laughs> yeah. gravitas but basically no like uh I think it looked at like Latino students and like they end up experiencing more microaggressions from people within their ethnicity you know because mm -hmm. that's how people you know joke around and you know so it's not as big a deal as people almost interpret it to be. Yeah. So if Phil Jackson makes a microaggression, I feel like a lot of people interpret it. How can you say Phil Jackson racist? He's the Zen master. Like he's coached so many black people. Like he's a great person, you know, but Phil Jackson's black. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I know that doesn't mean he can't say something racist or whatever, he's but it's like, he earned some leeway. <laughs> but you know, like the, the best thing about it is just that awareness is raised. And then let's move mm -hmm. on. All right. Yeah, like, exactly. that's, that's, that's the way to do it. That's literally all you need to do is like, oh, my bad. And then, then that's it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like a person, you don't have to be 
a racist to commit a microaggression? And yeah. what is a you know, what does it mean to be a racist really? You know? Well, it feels like we're in a in an aggressive time, not a microaggressive time. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like maybe that'll put things into perspective. People are actually out on the street protesting because they don't like the guy that was elected for the actual inflammatory things that he said. It's not a microaggression. These mm-hmm. are real. You know, these are actual aggressive rhetorical phrases and things that he's putting out there maybe don't you know and that's a lesson i think to be learned from this whole thing the the left shouldn't eat its own tail these are people that if somebody's willing to sit down and talk to you about the microaggression and hash it out and have that conversation they're probably more likely in your camp mm-hmm. than they are the people that you know you should actually be having the conversation with who don't agree with you about anything that's who you need to be talking to yeah. um We've got a little away from it, but you were saying before, and you weren't saying you personally, but you had said a lot of people are like, "Why do we keep having this stupid conversation?" It doesn't the, the thing the thing annoys me? I guess. Is well, I that, think it's an annoying conversation. It's, at it's, a certain it's point, even annoying. You know? It's even annoying to have, honestly, even being on the other side of it. But uh, I feel like people who are usually at fault of committing these quote unquote microaggressions and stuff, or saying racist things to begin with, they act like pages of the dictionary have been ripped out. Mm-hmm. Like there's literally impossible not to say something, and I don't, I just don't think it's that hard not to wear a sombrero every day. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just don't get that. Yeah. Even I've made jokes like, I'd be screwed if my friendship, my friend group was the most diverse group ever because I wouldn't be able to say anything about anyone. <laughs> I love that they're missing identities in my group because I say some things like everyone's wants are a little messed up. <laughs> I don't mean that. No, but you but get my point. Look, I mean, I think these are important like things to have a conversation about you need to know when to stop the conversation you need to know when to have the conversation um and this really again it just i'm kind of going off on a tangent here but i suppose one I of the, one of the things that's most disappointing about this election is the rejection of kind of intellectualism and yeah. actually having ideas and you know being able to voice your ideas in an intelligent way or be able to challenge things and and so that's really upsetting and it links with the microaggression thing because you know it's like oh this is this is bullshit this is pc this is political correctness gone mad right but you know you sometimes you need to have those conversations and like we should celebrate people that are willing to actually explore new things and and and, and kind of dig deeper into the language we use is just a small example um, but we also need to know when to to stop that. Well. And I want to say yeah. one thing also, like I feel like something that often gets lost in the conversation about microaggressions is also, I mean, it's not just like people are just getting their feelings hurt. They're ultra sensitive. You know what I mean? Often, and what the research has shown is that often a microaggression at the onset, you know, it has a very, you know, micro effect. Like it doesn't do like somebody like passing by touches your hair, somebody passes by, you know, uh, says something about, I don't know, your, uh, how you're dressed or something like that. That's a very micro effect. What, what ends up happening and what gets seen in the media is the cumulative effect of microaggression that often occurs. And what you often see is, for example, uh, black people that often go, that go to suburban schools, one of the most common, um, you know, things they get written up for is for getting into fights because of racism. Like, that's what they'll say. Like, I got into a fight because this person was being racist to me. And that that's bad, but you don't see the little things, those little tiny microaggressions that add up. And it's kind of unfortunate that we end up having the conversation when it's at the nth level, when it's usually like, this is the 15th time today somebody told me my hair looked like this. This is the 15th time today I saw, you know, Bob from Virginia wearing a mustache and a sombrero. I'm trying not to see that today. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the cumulative... <laughs> you know, traumatic effect that it could end up having on somebody. And it's, and it sucks that we end up having the conversation 
when you reach that nth level you know right. well and i think uh, fair point and I, I think that that is what it is right it's like the the individual thing isn't necessarily the problem it's when you deal with it over the course of a year or two years when you're at school and then you hit a breaking point i think part of the conversation though has to be on the part of the person that feels micro aggressed against say that be like you know what it really pisses me off when people want to touch my hair well, you know, but, like that's that's something we should be doing to empower people that don't let it get to the tenth time when somebody shows up wearing a sombrero on you know whatever single to be like, yeah, I don't like that. That annoys me. That hurts my feelings or whatever. It affects my. It makes me feel bad about my culture. Whatever it is. You but know? then that's the issue because then you have things like what was the camp? I Say can't it, remember the campus. Uh, was it Yale or? Well, yeah. well, they just had the email sent out like, hey, it was, it's ha- what what, was it? Harvard soccer team. No, 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 no. That's okay. a different case. I'm okay. thinking about like it was about how ha- it was like Halloween and like one of the deans sent out an email just like, hey, you know, Halloween, just make sure that you're sensitive about what costumes you wear and think about all the other students, which provoked a national debate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Didn't some another teacher also say it doesn't really matter. Like wear whatever you want. Respect people. I think one of the professors said and it, it, this is what it, this is what it comes to like. People end up having these conversations about larger moralities and they're using these, you know, micro issues as kind of like battlegrounds for that. And what he basically said was, you know, college is a time where you're supposed to explore and challenge ideas. We don't want to coddle these people. That's not a statement on, you know, whether or not it's offensive to wear a hat. It's a statement on what we want, you know, the ideal of intellectualism. Exactly. You know what I mean? And it becomes the battleground for that, you know? Yeah. And it just sucks when like literally when, you know, wearing a mustache or a hat. And actually somebody can you not do that becomes the battleground for intellectualism and academia. Yeah, and I, I suppose this is a, a much larger conversation about free speech, right? I mean, yeah. and, and and ultimately, um, the thing, I think the, the reason why microaggression and and this kind of linguistics should be challenged is because, like, and the most extreme case of what language can lead to is genocide, right? So, like, genocide begins with hate speech, which begins through the way you speak about people, right? So, I mean, that's the most extreme. And so, obviously, we're not at risk of that in this country, mm. but <laughs> people shrugging and shaking their heads. Um, no, we're not at risk of that in this country, but we know that what it can lead to, and we know that microaggression and language and rhetoric can have damaging effects. So I suppose that's why it's useful to challenge it. Uh, should we spend as much time as we have talking about it, talk about it? Yeah. No, we should <laughs> we should address it and move on and, and acknowledge it um, and, and progress. I, I, that's my opinion. But, you know, I think that there will be people that will always reject it. Um, and so you need to just approach it in a way where we're not having three hour conversations about one comment and people are saying this is political correctness you know this is crazy we're gonna wrap up now yeah uh, this that has been fantastic. great uh I definitely learned that I'm a low information voter. <laughs> that has been uh, well documented in this episode. Uh, so start with Chris. Where, where can people find you? 
Uh, you guys can find me on all social media platforms at Mansamp, which is the short version of Mandatory Samson, which is my podcast. Great podcast. The podcast that actually inspired us to start our own podcast. Yeah, so everyone, please check that out. Thanks, guys. And JD or Bob from Virginia. I don't know well, who you are. You can find me in 25 years time uh, <laughs> as uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Boom. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, we, we have such an end. Uh, yeah, other host. You know, like all our pages, you know, uh, unsolicited advice on Facebook, unsolicited advice on Instagram, all that. And hit that up. Yeah. And uh, links to the podcast, everything that we've talked about will be uh, below. Uh, and we out. <laughs>